Thank you so much. Um, a couple weeks ago, I started a message that I didn't finish on how to create and maintain authentic relational communities. And then last Sunday, I interrupted it yet again with a uh, somewhat uh, extemporaneous message on uh, shame. And I think they're actually very, very related. And although this month we have kind of slated it towards the idea of gratitude and thankfulness, which is appropriate, I guess I want to say that I am thankful this morning that I can continue on this message and finish it. So we're going to do that. If you weren't here for that message two weeks ago or even last Sunday, because I think they kind of do mesh together, uh, I am sure that you can get them either on the church's uh, Facebook page or on their web page. Uh, there are sites that you can go to to get those and be able to listen to them. And I suppose as a last resort, you could always ask the sound department and they could make you up a CD for that so that it is ready, all right? Um, I started with a um, basic premise a couple of weeks ago, which is this. I believe that people are desperately looking for a place called Teshuva. I believe born into the heart of every single human being is this cry for teshuva. And teshuva is a word that literally means come home. Come home. It's like no matter what you've done, God gives you the ability, the freedom, and the grace to come home. People want something greater than what I described as an elevator experience. People want a place where they are loved and valued and can be real with other real people. But all too often what happens is we recognize we have stuff. How many of you have stuff? You got stuff, I got stuff, all God's children got stuff, right? Okay, we all got stuff. And what happens when we realize we have stuff is two things go on. Either we put a mask on to hide our stuff, or we put up a fence, a barrier, a border wall to keep out people's stuff so it doesn't infringe upon our stuff. But it's only when we are willing to get up close and personal when we're willing to get in other people's faces, so to speak, that we can find what it means to have real and authentic relationships. There's no such thing, please hear me, there is no such thing as authenticity from a distance. I don't care how much you love those podcasts or how much you love your TV evangelist or the radio evangelist. I, I, I go to the why. And it's interesting to me. I pull in. The first thing I do is I shut my car off, I get out, and I go start doing my stretches, waiting for the Y to open up. There's another lady who comes. Some of you would even know her. Barb is her name. She's over at Silver Lake, over at the uh, Institute. She lives there. She comes in in the morning, gets there at the same time. She sits in her car to make sure that she can listen to all of the different speakers on Christian radio. You can listen to the radio all you want. But at the end of it all, although they might be good teaching, they might even be good thought-provoking kind of ideas, you don't really have a relationship with them. If you get sick, call Joel Osteen and ask him to come and visit you in the hospital. You don't really have a relationship. There's no authentic relationship that's involved. The scriptures that I gave you that I'm going to give again, Ephesians 4.25 says this, what this adds up to then is this, no more lies, no more pretending or pretense. Ephesians 4.25, the second part of the verse says, tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we are all connected to each other. And then finally, Romans 12.9, love from the center of who you are, don't fake it. And what I did that first Sunday is I gave you three kind of elemental priorities that I think have to be in place for us to create and ultimately to maintain authentic relationships. Very simply, and I'm not going to take time to develop them. Uh, you can look at them or listen to them again yourself. Number one, recognize and admit our need 
for one another, for others. In other words, what I said to you that day is we don't really know who we are until we get in relationships with other people. Because we can have a false view of ourselves that until we put ourselves in a real situation with real people, it doesn't matter. Um, Ultimately, people become a mirror for us to discover who we really are. Uh, I am not whole as a human being if I don't live in relationship with people. I can't just live on an island and think that's it for the rest of my life. I find out who I am when I connect with other people. And although we sing the song, Jesus, you're all I need, and there's an element of truth to that, I think there's a bigger element of truth to that not being true, which is Jesus made us to need other people. He is the one who made the pronouncement, it's not good for man to be alone. So the first thing I said to you is that we had to recognize and admit our need for one another. Number two, we have to work on cultivating deeper relationships. Uh, They don't just happen by accident. They take time and work and effort, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about that more in a moment, so I won't go into that. Number three, we have to take action. We have to commit to being authentic. We have to choose to take that awkward step of turning around in the elevator and actually talking to people. Real people, real stuff, meeting our real stuff. And that kind of brings us up today. So again, if you didn't hear that message, you are welcome to get that from the sound department or you can listen to it online. (coughs) How many of you have heard of a man by the name of Gene Stallings? You guys are neophytes. He was my generation. Gene Stallings was the first assistant head coach that Bear Bryant brought onto his staff when he was the coach at the University of Alabama. How many of you guys know Bear Bryant? You've heard the name at least. He is like one of the winningest football college coaches out there. So Bear Bryant brought Gene Stallings onto staff, and at the same time, that same year, the University of Alabama began a fellowship of Christian Athletes chapter. How many of you ever heard of Fellowship of Christian Athletes? Some of you. Okay. They started a chapter, and Gene Stallings went to the very first meeting. And he began to attend regularly. Bear Bryant looked from a distance at this chapter and was a bit confused because he noticed that some of his players began to attend it, and then more, and then more, until the majority of his team began to attend this chapter meeting. In 1964, just before the season began, Bear Bryant called Gene Stallings into his office, and he said this to him, and this is quoted from an article. Stallings, you know what is the worst thing that has happened to our football team? It's the FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Those players are doing nothing but hugging one another, loving on one another, and they won't hit anybody. And then he stormed out of his office, leaving Stallings to think about it. That was the beginning of the season, 1964. If any of you know anything about college football, 1964 was a hallmark year for the University of Alabama in that they won that year the national championship. First time that Bear Bryant had a national championship under his belt. They won that year that he had complained to Stallings. This is what he did. He called Stallings back into his office and he said this. Stallings, You know what the best thing is that has ever happened to our football team? It's the FCA. It's brought such a oneness and closeness to our team. We were unified because of the influence it had on our squad. Ironically, by the way, that year was Stallings' last year at the University of Alabama. He was then hired as the head coach at Texas A&M, and two years later, Texas A&M actually defeated Bear Bryant's team at the Cotton Bowl. And the reason they were able to have such winning teams, they both would tell you, it was because of the sense of community and connectedness they had as a team. Real, committed, connected relationships. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, our church had our first of the year, our first life group. How many of you guys actually attended a life group meeting? Uh, I have to tell you, I can't speak for you. But it can feel for me a bit forced and contrived. 
you're, you're kind of uh, thrust into a meeting with people that you don't always really know well, and you don't know that you would really want to open up to them anyways. And honestly, some of them you might not even like. But you're thrust into this meeting, and here is our hope as a church. Our hope is that if you go long enough, you stick with it, and you actually learn how to be real in that setting, that you might actually develop some relationships that might actually help you, that might make a difference if you stick with it. So I want to encourage you, by the way, as just uh, one of the pastors here, I want to encourage you, if you're not a part of a life group, maybe it would do you well to get a part of a life group. You're not so mature that you don't need this. Everybody needs connections in that way. And this is a great way to connect with your family here at Family Life Church. So here's the challenge for all of us. Although we say we want more and deeper relationships, all too often our relationships remain on a superficial level. Uh, they, you see somebody and your first question is, so how are you doing today? And before they can even answer, you've kept walking, right? How many of you have ever done that? Where you pass somebody and you say, how are you doing? And you keep going. Or the level of our relationships are cold out, isn't it? Yeah. And that's it. We're done. Conversation. Okay, it's getting awkward. Let me move on to somebody else. That's the extent of our relational interaction. Or you talk about some hobby. How many points was your deer? What did it dress out at? Okay. How was your workout pushing those sleds? Was that hard? Yeah. Okay. Huh. Yeah, me too. All right, I guess I'm going to go get a coffee. That's the extent of our relationships. They stay surface level. They stay superficial. I believe part of the reason that they stay that way for many of us is that we believe that we're supposed to act more like a Christian. And because we think of that, we actually do that really well. We act. We put on masks and we act in front of one another. The pressure to have it all together has turned the church into an actor's guild perfecting their Christian roles. And I want to suggest to you that play acting is ultimately the death knell of the church. You guys heard what happened in Texas over this last week or so, right? The shooting in Texas? Interestingly, I was reading an article uh, yesterday night. And do you know that they're going to tear down that building, that church building? They're tearing it down. Because the people say, we can't go back in there. Say, well, there's not a whole lot of people left. Half, half, half of the church was killed. So what are we going to do? They said, which I thought was great. The, the pastor said, here's the deal. The church is not made up of brick and stone. It's made up of us. We're family together. So whether that building is there or not, we're going to continue to meet together. Now someone has very graciously, anonymously agreed to donate the monies needed to build the brand new building. So they're going to do that, as far as I understand anyways. But I'm here to say to you, you can't play act when you've had somebody come into your building and shoot up your building and kill people. This is where it gets really real. Are you family together or not? You hear story after story of people throwing themselves over the bodies of other people in order to protect them, to save lives. That's where things get deep. When vulnerable relationships are replaced by a masquerade ball, then the church is lost. My father-in-law used to say all the time, he said, the church was never intended to be a museum. It was intended to be a hospital for people that needed healing, that need to become whole. So, my, my question to you today is, and I want you to listen to the pronouns that I use, how can you help create a culture of authenticity in your church? How can you help to build real, meaningful relationships with other believers here in this house? How can you establish and grow, grow relationships 
with your friends and relatives who are maybe on a journey toward God or maybe they haven't even started yet. How can you do it? I want to give you uh, very, very simply, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to develop them. I know it's a busy day. Uh, We have to go home and peel potatoes and cook our cranberry sauce uh, in the microwave, in the can, just to see how fun it sparks. Uh, We all have a lot of stuff to do. So I'm not going to take a lot of time to develop this. By the way, do you guys like mashed potatoes or whipped potatoes? It doesn't matter. Mashed is the only way to go. Um, um, I said that just for Courtney. (laughs) Um, You understand what it's like when you marry into a family and you come to the family and they eat food prepared differently than you're used to? It's always a growing time. Um, Here is what I want to do. I want to give you these six points. Six. But I'm going to do it very briefly in the hope that maybe as you take notes, and by the way, if you didn't notice, out on the little stand right there by the sound booth are little handy-dandy pieces of paper from which you can take notes and leave them in your Bible until you look at them later and you say, what was this about again? I can't remember. Um, But anyways, you could discuss this at your next life group. Discuss what it is that means that we have authentic relationships. Okay, number one. The first thing is be intentional. Be intentional. Think about perceptive questions you can ask that open up the arena for deeper relationships. Instead of just a quick, hey, how you doing, and keep walking, actually think ahead of time about questions you can ask that might actually open the door for real conversation. Um, Instead of asking yes or no questions, you know, it's like when my wife says to me, how was your day today? What did you say, David? Fine. Did you do anything? Yeah. What? I don't know. I don't remember. Instead of asking those kinds of questions, which I consider to be closed-end questions, why don't you think about questions you can ask that require more of an answer than yes or fine? So if you know you're going to see somebody, and you know that they're dealing with a situation, you might ask a question like this. Hey, I I saw on Facebook that your mother ended up in the ER because of a mini stroke, I think it was, or she fell or something, and I'm just wondering how things are going, and do you need any help, and how is your mom doing? Is is there any symptoms coming afterwards? You actually ask questions that probe looking for deeper answers than fine. So you're preparing ahead of time. What do you think God is doing in the midst of what you're dealing with right now? That's a good question to ask people. What's God doing here? Instead of just, oh, I'm sorry, and then walk away awkwardly, actually ask questions that open the door to answers that are deeper than just yes or no. And what this means, by the way, is that when you ask a question, wait for a response. And wait for the full response. I can't tell you how many times I've had people come and ask me questions. People in this church, they'll say, oh, I hear your feet hurt. Uh, How are your feet doing today? I said, well, you know, they're doing okay. I've got plantar. Oh, I've got the same thing. Do you know how much my feet hurt every single day? And then suddenly I realized you didn't ask me a question because you cared about me. You asked me a question so you could whine about you. If you're going to ask a question, ask a question that you really care about, that you really want the answer to, and you actually listen to the whole answer. Don't use the question as a door that you want open to talk about yourself. And when you ask the question, let's make sure the question is your agenda, that it's actually about that. I've come up to, I've had people come up to me at times, um, um, here, why don't you stand up for a minute? You can help me out. I've had people come up to me like this, and they just stand there like this. They just stand looking at me. And you know they want to talk to you. So you're Pastor Chris right now, okay? You're Pastor Chris. And they're like, so, um, Pastor Chris, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? 
Good, good. I wanted to talk to you about this. Um, I, I really don't like our opening of our service anymore, and I don't like the chairs. I like the pews better. And um, I've been meaning to talk to you about these things. About Well, I really don't like your tie either. Um, <laughs> it looks too much like Jeff's tie. And, um, well, um, so his opening question, hi, Pastor Chris, how are you, had nothing to do with his agenda. Thanks, you can have a seat. But we do that kind of thing. We ask a question that we really don't care about. We just use it as an open door because we think it's polite. I would almost rather, if people have a question, just ask the question. Don't ask me a fake question to open the door. When I say be intentional, be intentional means you take forethought. You you have planning, premeditation, calculation. So if you know you're going to see somebody, like, one of the regular people that comes to our dinner, uh, maybe some of you guys remember it, was a lady by the name of Cindy Keel and her husband who was bent way over. How many of you guys remember them? Okay. Uh, some of you might even sat with them and talked to them because as his disease worsened, he got more and more bent over and he needed actually help just to eat. So how many of you know that Cindy's husband died this last week? And how many of you know that her mother died two days later? So, Cindy might be at this dinner tonight. Would it not be appropriate to think ahead of time about how you might approach Cindy and talk to her? What kinds of things you might say or ask? It means premeditation. It means thinking about it ahead of time. You're going to meet people there tonight. Some of them you won't know. And you're going to have an opportunity to sit down. Maybe it would be good to think ahead of time about questions you could ask them. So, tell me about yourself. Do you live here in town or where you live? Not because I'm trying to stalk you, by the way. I don't need that information so I can come and, you know, do anything weird. I just want to, do you live in this area? Do you work in this area? Oh, you're retired. What did you do before you retired? And you ask questions that actually draw them out. Premeditation. Part of being intentional, by the way, is this. And again, I don't want to take a lot of time development, but it means this. Actually asking God to help you to see every encounter you have as a divine encounter. As a setup from God for you to establish relationship. So that tonight, we're going to go down to the Moose Club. We're going to feed between three and 400 people. I've been inviting people. We've had people come in regularly. We have regular people who come in every week to get baked goods. And when they come in the door, I've said to them, every single one of them, by the way, we have a free dinner Sunday night at the Moose Club. Do you want to come? Come on down to the dinner. But you know you're going to see people that you might know or you might not know. Why not think ahead of time about questions you can ask and say, God, help me to treat every one of them as a precious gift from you of a divine encounter. So the first one is be intentional. Number two, be hospitable. Be hospitable. Uh, I am more and more convinced that this is one of the major gifts that has been sadly lacking in the church and that this coming up generation is desperately looking for. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, and given to hospitality. Hospitality. Um, I recognize that for some of you here, you are just made in a certain way that you, it's like your bell is rung when somebody just shows up at your house unexpectedly. You love that. You love it when people just happen to be driving by and just say, I want to stop and see you. You like that. I recognize, however, that for some others here in this place, even the thought of it is overwhelming. I have to clean my house before you're coming. I have to get everything just perfect because company's coming. That's how I was raised. Company was coming. It meant the whole house was on full alert. And because of that, we didn't invite people over very much because it was so much work, so much time, so much effort, so stressful. There are people that I think of when I think about 
the gift of hospitality. People who are just like, that, that's something that God has put into the warp and woof of their being. I think of people like Donna Schultz. She's just good at it. We, we go to Thailand, and the very first thing she does, she, she makes a dinner for Ben and I. We were coming there. She makes a dinner. She makes a pie for each of us based upon what she knew we liked. I don't even remember what Ben's is. I didn't care what Ben's was. <laughs> Mine was crumb top apple pie. Oh, yeah. not, not, by the way, for years I always thought Dutch apple pie was that until somebody gave me Dutch apple pie with this weird kind of creamy evaporated milk junk in it. And all of a sudden I realized, no, I don't want that. I want crumb top. And that's what Donna made for me. Everything that she did was in order to make our life easy, but she didn't do it in a way that made us feel weird. You know how sometimes you can go to somebody, so everything is like just so, so, no, just come on. And then everything that was about that whole visit was in order to be more relaxed and enjoyable. I think of Donna when I think about a gift of hospitality. But not all of us have that gift of hospitality, but we can develop within ourselves an increasing level of hospitality towards other people. Here's what my thing is. I, when I think about hospitality, I am thinking about inviting people into the rhythm of your life. So, um, when I go to Batavia, for example, I sometimes have to run into Batavia to do something, you know, go to BJ's or whatever, I don't even remember. Most often, I am looking to find somebody to go with me. Not because I can't go alone, because sometimes, honestly, going alone would mean I have more time to think, to pray, to process things, or to listen to podcasts. But I want people to be a part of my life, and I want to be a part of their life. Invite somebody into the everyday. You're going to make one of those apple pies. Invite somebody to come on over and try it. Say, you know, I haven't done this in a while. Why don't you do it? Or I was talking to somebody just a couple of days ago who every Thanksgiving, they invite people into their house for Thanksgiving. Single people that they know, maybe don't have somebody here local that they can have Thanksgiving. We say, why don't you come on over to our house? Invite people into the ordinary stuff of your life. Learn to enjoy people. Um, I don't know how many of you guys grew up watching Andy Griffith show. I did. It's one of my favorites still to this day. Andy Griffith actually had a church. Did you know that? Do you know Andy Griffith attended church? Do you know the name of his church? Okay, you guys are not Andy Griffith fans. I'm sorry. Don't ever say that you are. His church actually had two names. I put them together for you as one name because I think that's what they should have done in the first place. Uh, it was called All Souls Church, and it was called Community Church. That's all it was ever called, All Souls Church and Community Church. So I called it All Souls Community Church. But I can remember on one occasion which they had a guest speaker at their church, Dr. Breen. And he entitled his message, What's the Hurry? And he talked about how people are scurrying around all the time, so busy that they never have time for one another. And the, the irony of the whole episode is that after they get done with that sermon, they all end up at Andy's house on his front porch where they're relaxing and they're drinking tea and they're playing guitar and singing. And everything's wonderful until somebody remembered, hey, we used to do this thing called uh, band in the parking lot, or in the park rather, and it was wonderful. And we'd all get together and we'd listen to music and we'd sit out and we'd drink our lemonade. It was wonderful. And they all decided it would be a great idea to do that again. So they went to the gazebo, but the gazebo's falling down. The boards are rotten, so they have to get under there with all of the spider webs and jacket back up. And they put on their band uniforms, and they don't fit anymore because some of them have grown a little bit over time. So they've got to sew all of them. And then they're trying to practice, and now some of them are tone deaf, and they can't hear anything anymore. And there's stress, and there's fighting, and they're upset with one another until suddenly Aunt B speaks up and says, this is crazy. We were actually enjoying life sitting on our porch. Why are we stressing over this? Because what we really remember about those good old days was relationship together. It wasn't just that we had a band. Hospitable. Being able to have people join into your life. Whether it be in your house. Some of you, that's what you enjoy. You like having people over. 
For some of you, it's taking somebody out to eat. You like people, but that's too stressful, so let's do it another way. Find a way to bring people into the rhythm of your life. And piggybacking on that is number three, be available. Planned events and meetings are good, but they're often just the introduction to real relationship. Um, True community can't be guaranteed through scheduled events. Sometimes it has to be, and this is one of the hard ones for me, you have to be flexible, available, and spontaneous. I like plans. I like to think through things ahead of time. Uh, We're going to go do our vacation. We plan it through. We know where we're staying. We know what we're doing. I hear people talk about, oh, we just got in the car and drove. Yeah, but where'd you go? Well, we drove for, you know, a few hours until we stopped and saw this big ball of twine somewhere, and we thought we'd stay and look at that for a while, and then we went to this other place where they had faces in the rock. I don't know what it was called, but we looked at them for a while, and there were other people around, too. Um, And then we went to this place where, I don't know, it was all dead trees. I don't know what it's called. Um, I don't know. They just go. I like plans. I like to know where I'm going and what I'm doing. But here's my point. If you get nothing else out of this point, get this. I think this is about making people more than programs the point. In other words, you make people the point. Everything you do needs to be about somehow connecting with people. Karen and I go on vacations, and sometimes we go to Florida, sometimes we go to Myrtle Beach. We go a couple different places. We've been other places as well. But wherever we go, like last year we were able to go to Lancaster, everywhere we go, we want to connect with friends. We want to connect with people that we know, whether it be relatives, friends, family, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to be able to connect with them. So this is being uh, available to have your schedule interrupted a little bit. I don't know if you've realized it yet or not, but deaths in the family are never convenient. They don't come at convenient times. I get a call from somebody in the church and they'll say, um, so-and-so has just passed away. Can you do the funeral? And in my mind, and you'll forgive my carnality, but it's true. In my mind, I'm thinking, oh, my word. Okay, that means, okay, this is Sunday. They'll probably have the viewing Tuesday or Wednesday. Funeral Thursday, maybe Friday latest. And I've got a horrendous week. Funerals are never convenient. Crises in people's lives never come at a convenient time. It means you're willing to drop things. Because you maybe have a friend who just is struggling and they need somebody who could drop what they're doing and just pray with them. Or just come and sit with them and care about them. That's what being available is about. Number four. And again, you all develop these yourself uh, in your life groups, which again, I would recommend to you. Number four, be teachable. And this is jumping off of something I said a couple weeks ago, where someone starts talking about an issue and before they can even finish it, the person they're talking to is already an expert on it and already can tell them everything about it. They've had it worse than you've ever thought of having it. Uh, They've they've done more than you... I mean, I talk to people that if they have done everything that they have said that they have ever done, for as long as they've said that they've ever done it, they'd have to be hundreds of years old. But they want you to know they're an expert at it. So some people are just like that. They're always looking... uh, for somebody to show how smart they are or how experienced they are. One of the things I've learned in marriage, uh, I'm not good at it yet, by the way, I've just learned it, Um, and that's this, that when your spouse tells you about something they're going through, they're not always looking for you to fix it. Sometimes they're just looking for you to care. I'm not like that. I'm a fix-it. If you've got a problem, let me fix it. If this isn't working right, then let's come up with a system that will work better. That's not what she's always asking for. She just wants to be able to tell me, this is not going well. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I could make it go well. That's not what she's looking for. She wants to do it her way, but sometimes her way struggles. So she wants you to listen. She wants you to care. She doesn't want you to fix it. But having said that, I think it's also important that you be willing to hear, listen to, and actually take into consideration wise counsel. Listen to these verses all out of Proverbs, from Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel 
is wise. Proverbs 15.22 Without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. In Proverbs 19.20 Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. Every one of us needs to be willing to go to somebody who's older and wiser and more experienced and get wise counsel. I have people come to me all the time and they tell me what they're going to do. And I've got to tell you, honestly, uh, most times I think, um, I think it's not the wisest thing. In fact, sometimes I think you're nuts. Um, but when I ask them, how did you come up to this? How did you make the decision to do this? They will tell me one of two things. They'll say, God told me. And everything in me wants to say, God did not tell you that. Now, I can't do that because I don't want to have responsibility for your life. But everything in me wants to say to you, God never said that. That's stupid. <laughs> Nobody has ever said that except for you in your own mind. You're nuts. Don't do it. It's going to destroy your life. But I don't. I just say, okay, well, if God said it, who am I to argue with God? Everything in me wants to say, did God really say? But I, even hearing those words coming off of my lips scare me a little bit. The other thing they say to me is this. Well, we got counsel. Oh, okay. Who'd you get counsel from? Well, um, I have a friend at work that I was talking to, and she said this, that you know, I ought to do this. And so I, I was thinking, you know, that seems right to me. Tell me about your friend. And you find out your friend's life is more messed up than your life. And you're getting counsel from that person. And you think that's wise. It's kind of like a drunk getting counsel from a drunk. We want to be teachable. We want to be able to gain wisdom, but you got to know who it is that you're asking it from. Make sure there's somebody who has a proven record of having some wisdom by how their life has demonstrated it. You don't go to somebody whose life is falling apart and say, tell me how to live life. Have some wise people that you can actually go to and ask them what it is to do. Now, on another level, however... Um, and this is something that actually came back to me while I was preparing this. I hadn't thought about it for years. Uh, years and years ago, when my parents and my family began to attend Italy Naples Baptist Church, um, my dad was a kind of a, a small mom-and-pop farmer. We only ever had a few cows and beefers and some hogs, horses. Uh, we did more uh, vegetables than anything else. But we had some. But in order to do that kind of farming, my dad, I found over the years, could fix about anything. Didn't matter where it was. Out in the field, he could fix it. He could weld out there. He figured out ways to do everything. He just was an amazing guy. And I had watched him tear apart our cars and our tractors time and again and fix them. We were going to this church a very, very short time, and dad found out there was a guy by the name of Albert Hange who could fix vehicles, who did kind of automotive stuff in his backyard. And so my dad went to him and said to him, Hey, Al, uh, I'm looking at changing the pistons and the rigs in my car and maybe boring out the cylinder a little bit, and I'm wondering if you could help me. Now, you've got to understand, I knew that my dad knew how to do that. I knew he knew how. He'd done it many times. And here he's asking Albert Hengi to come to his house and to help him to do it. And one of the things that was really interesting is that Albert didn't do it like my dad. My dad would lay everything out on the bench neatly marked, perfectly clean. Albert would take it out of the engine, greasy, and throw it over into a pile. And I'm thinking, that's just got to be killing my dad. But here's why my dad did it. It took me years to realize this. My dad did this as an opportunity. Number one, he could learn something. He's always was willing to learn. Al might know some things he doesn't know but also as a way of opening the door for relationship. That's why he asked him, just to open the door for relationship. Being that kind of teachable opens doors where you actually let people have some inroads into your life. That's part of the reason why um, I like the idea of MOPS and the Moms group on Facebook is because in that group you have some older ladies who have actually done it and proven by their life that they did pretty well at it. Not perfect. Nobody's done it perfect. Doesn't mean there's not things they wouldn't change, but they've done pretty well. And the youngers have those olders there as helps and supports and encouragements. And I think that's how it ought to be, that we have people in our lives
that we are teachable with. Number five, be forgiving. When we make a decision to enter into deeper relationships, it is very possible that people might, well, say or do something that will hurt you. I was looking at Facebook just recently and somebody posted something like, why is it that the people that you love the most hurt you the most? Well, because if you don't love them, you don't care what they do. You ignore it. It, doesn't, it just rolls off your back. It's only when you love people that it actually can have that kind of impact on you. And when you love somebody, when you care, when you enter into relationship, not only could I say they might, I think I could say they will say and do something that will hurt you. And you have to be willing to forgive. Um, in my family growing up, we had what I call, for lack of a better term, the Lanaville system. The Lanaville system worked like this. Somebody does something you don't like and you blow up at them. And then because you blow up at them, they get mad at you. They don't like what you did, what you said, how you acted. And so they pull back. They enter into what we call silent mode. You withdraw. You don't talk to them anymore. And then over time, in order to make up for it, the offender will actually do something nice for them and then life will go on like it was normal again. So like I can remember the time when my sister uh, was at my parents' house and she had uh, her son there, uh, one of her children, and uh, he was acting up and my dad got mad and my dad yelled at and spanked that child. And my sister got furious. She blew up at him. Who do you think you are to talk to my son that way and to spank my son? And she stormed out of the house. She lived about two miles down the road, two, two and a half miles. And uh, she lived in a, at that time in a trailer. And uh, she stormed out of the house, took her children home. And by the way, this was like late fall, just after Thanksgiving. And uh, stormed out of the house, took her kids with her, and did not talk to my mom and my dad. Wouldn't talk anymore. That was it. Time goes by. And so one day, after a big snow, there is my sister, two and a half miles away. My dad drives the two and a half miles with his little Ford Ferguson with a plow on it and plows out her driveway. Doesn't say a word. Just shows up and plows out her driveway. After driving, by the way, no cover on it, nothing else. You're out there freezing, driving two and a half miles to plow out her driveway. Drives away, doesn't say anything else. And about a week later, Shows up at her house with bags of groceries. Comes in, knocks on the door. She opens the door. He just walks in, puts the groceries on the counter and looks at her and says, got any coffee? <laughs> Whole thing's done. Everything's fine again. We're all back to normal. That's the Lanaville system. Unless you think, by the way, that's just my sister. That's something that I fight daily is this silent thing that can go on inside. You just pull back. I want to suggest to you, real maturity is being willing not to just ignore, not pretend it didn't happen, not just to do something nice to make up for it. It's actually to talk about what went on and actually allow for confession, repentance, and forgiveness to happen. Other than that, you don't have real relationship. You have a pretend relationship that you're just kind of surviving. Number six, finally, and I've said this in so many different ways, be vulnerable. Be real. It's scary, it's risky, it's terrifying, but it's essential to true authenticity. I haven't said this already um, specifically, but let me just say, when I'm talking about being real in relationship, that doesn't mean be real to everybody. It means have a few, one or two or three, select people that you can be true to that you can be authentic, you can open up to. There are some people that honestly, I wouldn't trust with my stuff. I've watched how they've dealt with other people and I wouldn't trust them with my stuff. But there are a few people that I can be honest with, that I can say, this is what I'm struggling with right now, without feeling like they're going to judge me or run away because my stuff is so bad. Only have a few people but have them that you can be real with, you can be honest with. Share with a friend, a real friend, a true friend, one you can trust, the real struggles, the real challenges of your life. Now, the way I look at it is this. Uh, I am going to be turning 60 coming up in April of 2018. So in about five, six months, I'll be turning 60. 
never thought I'd ever be 60. It's not because I thought I would die necessarily. I just never thought about being 60. I'll be old. Officially old, I guess. Um, and what that is, is a precursor to death. Because after you turn 60, you die, right? Or something like that. I don't know. Um, I know, I know. Um, but I was thinking about this recently in light of uh, things that are going on. We had some people who we are familiar with who uh, are credentialed with the Elam Fellowship and they live out in Michigan. And their 18-year-old daughter was taking a shower this last week. And while she was taking a shower, she had a uh, seizure and fell down and drowned to death in her bathtub. And there are several situations that Karen and I are aware of just like that, where it's just, it's just unreal, the things that are going on, the things that people are facing, death or serious debilitating diseases and struggles. Some, we were talking with a friend of ours who actually we connected with, reconnected with in May at the leadership conference, and he actually ended up buying our dinner. But his wife suddenly had a stroke and is fighting for her life. Just hard stuff. And I began to think about, okay, when I die, what do I want written on my gravestone? I can guarantee you this. What I don't want to see is the final dollar amount that's in my bank account that day. Because I don't think I'll care or anybody else will care. And yet we fight and fight for money, for the stuff. What I hope will be written on my gravestone is that I love God, I love my wife, I love my kids and my grandkids, and I love people. Because that's far more important in the long run. In order to get there, we have to choose to be real. I have heard um, comments from folks over the years about sometimes I'm too real, especially after last Sunday's sermon, for which I apologize to every parent with small children. Um, it's called not thinking about who your audience is at that moment. Um, but anyways, I've had people say to me, uh, you are way too honest up front. And I, okay, I don't have time. I really don't have time or energy to hide too much. What you see is what you get. How I am here is pretty much how I am anywhere. Doesn't get any better. This is it. I don't change my preaching voice in order to get, you know, fancy or more impressive. This is it. I would much rather live with real people who are dealing with real stuff, but we're going towards Jesus at the same time. It doesn't mean I'm just saying, you know, I had somebody say this week on Facebook, a friend of ours, Matt Drake, was talking about people who are real, but they're real jerks. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being real, but being real in a way that wants to change and grow, wants to get better at this. So, concluding today, do we want a place that is real, full of real people, that actually welcomes real people in? We're going to meet people, and we're going to talk to people about the Lord. We're going to talk to people about their lives tonight. I personally think this church, this family, has a lot to offer people. I think you guys are great. Everywhere I go, I talk about that. I think it's worth even saying to some of them, which I have. Why don't you come on out to church sometime and try it? And I've had people say to me, well, if I walked in the doors of that church, I think hell would freeze over. Good. It's about time it did. Come on in anyways. You would fit right in. Well, I don't have any kind of fancy clothes. I just got this. Be just like all the rest of us. I wear this because it keeps me warm. And by the way, it is kind of cold in here today. Uh, this keeps me warm. I'm sorry, David. But we're real. We're normal people with real stuff. And we want real people to become a part of us. That's what about. And if that's what your heart is, especially as we're looking at one of the, one of the scheduled opportunities we have in order to love on Warsaw, if that's in your heart to say, I want to live life more real. I want to be normal. I'm going to become a part of a life group where I can actually share my life with others and let them share with me so that together we can get stronger and better. The scripture says, can two walk together except they be agreed? 
That's what it takes. If that's in your heart, I'm going to ask you to stand and I want to close in prayer and then we'll go peel our potatoes. Bake our cranberry sauce. Is it not true, by the way? I'm just curious. If you were really making cranberry sauce, wouldn't you have to actually make it, boil it or something? Cranberries, right? Yeah, okay. So it's not all wrong. You guys are looking at me like it was weird to say that. In standing, you're saying, I want to live life with some level of reality. And again, that doesn't mean being real to every single person that you actually see. It means being honest and open, being vulnerable, but especially so with only select people who are close friends that you have learned to trust, to have your back, and you know it. Father, in Jesus' name, I recognize that uh, what started out as a one message has become these three, uh, not by intent, it just happened, but at the same time, Lord, it's the recognition that you have called us to be a community, a family. We're called Family Life Church, and we want real life among the family here, where all of us deal with the baggage that we brought in. But we don't stay there. Because of our connection, first of all, to you, and then second of all, to one another, we actually can grow and change. We can mature. We can get better. And Lord, that's our heart. That, not that we look at others and say, our job is to help you, to fix you. It's, no, we're all walking this out together. We're at different places, but we're walking this out together. And we welcome them into our family. Help us to be that kind of people that we would embrace the broken and the bruised, the lost and the dying, and that we would make them a part with us and we would become a part with them. Help us to find times and places where we look for these kinds of divine encounters. May we have many tonight that when we walk away, we'll say, wow, this was the best dinner I ever went to because I made connections with people. Not just I ate some good food, but I made connections with people. I went out of my way to talk to the people around me. Help us to have that kind of mindset and attitude. Give us courage and grace for each day as we talk with people that you put in our path. Bless this in our outreach tonight. May we reach many people for your kingdom's sake. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day as you're preparing for tonight.